Welcome to Unchanging Education with Dan Clemens. This is Season 2, Episode 5. So let me start off by just reiterating this lineage, this teacher-centered versus student-centered in the way that I'm imagining the, the background. So starting with well, let, let me let me start with who I consider to be the great grandfather figures of teacher centered being Locke and student centered being Rousseau. And one of the big ideas here is that Locke would emphasize or prioritize liberty over equality, whereas Rousseau the inverse, equality over liberty. And the grandfather figures, Bagley, who I discussed. Uh, in the previous episode, in contradistinction to Dewey. So these are the grandfather figures, Bagley of teacher-centeredness and Dewey of student-centeredness. And then perhaps a, a less intuitive pairing would be these father, father figures, uh, teacher-centeredness, uh, Philip Reif, and student-centeredness, Paulo Freire. So I just wanted to make a general comment about this pairing and also about Reif. The, the reason that I'm, I'm pairing these different, different thinkers together, Locke, Rousseau, Bagley, Dewey, Reif, and Freire, is that I basically consider them to be contemporaries and to have opposing viewpoints. And so Philip Reif, the most important text for me is fellow teachers which was published in 1973 and Freire's pedagogy of the press was published in English in 1970 so I feel like even though it may be an unintuitive pairing um, that in some ways maybe I wasn't completely sure about now I think that I think this is right so I think this is the kind of the general backbone structure of the entire lit review of the two different traditions. So let me just touch upon Reif very briefly. Of course, Reif and Freire are both very interested in culture, but they're both also interested in education. And since I haven't really said much about Reif, um, I would just want to touch upon Manning's excellent summary on Reif, the pedagogue. Uh, Reif believes in an established and revered pedagogy focuses on direct rather than secondary sources and unpacking layers of meaning, which is quite general, but also a respectful attitude for careful deliberations and against quick judgments or summary dismissals. Ultimately, it's for the substantive acquisition of knowledge, historical, empirical, theoretical, and yes, even emotional knowledge. And this includes both interpretive skill and a moral stance. Okay. So following up on Begley, I wanted to posit three different phases. And historically, I think that Begley would probably be in between one and two. So first note that teacher-centeredness um, or essentialism 
we're also going to touch upon perennialism a little bit. It really has a lot to do with learning about the West, um, Western culture and um, civilization more broadly. And uh, Neil Postman also talks about how we should, like, since every subject has its own history, we also, every subject should also teach its own history, this historical emphasis. And there is an unapologetic sense of the greatness of the West uh, from the glory that was Greece and the grandeur that was Rome and so much more. And the obligation to uphold it. So moving into... So we might say that a kind of a traditional old-fashioned or old-school teacher-centeredness sort of became de-emphasized and there was there's a sense that a lot of that kind of book learning about the West and, and historical emphasis that basically in absence of those things by sensing that those things may not be completely relevant they can be taken out that an absence or a vacuum is created but it in the second phase, it's just not inculcating an appreciation of this inheritance, right? It's not this emphasis on a pious and humble inheritance of what, what we're calling Arnoldian culture, just meaning a definition from Arnold about culture as being the best that has been thought, said, and written. So just as an absence or as a lack... Um, students in this second phase simply may not come to see the value of culture and civilization. Uh, they may not also really see the value of capitalism or free markets. That these kinds of things were simply just not emphasized as being, well, as being not that important. And so, whether there's something kind of positively teacher-centered in this first phase... And then, basically, a kind of a secular absence of those things. Which maybe was thought to be uh, the terminus, but perhaps not anticipating the vacuum that this absence or this lack creates to something much different now, in what we might call a third phase, is the sense that the West is actually bad. And so to teach it as something good or to be for it um, is problematic. So from this vacuum that, you know, with simply not teaching it and people just learning, not learning that it is good, not learning to defend it, the vacuum of this anti-West, anti-canon, anti-capitalism enters the void, so to speak. And so moving from teaching that something is good to simply not teaching it's good to actively teaching that it's bad. Teaching it only, teaching, you know, teaching the West, um, you know, Western culture. Um, it's taught, it's basically taught as, a, as something that is bad, something to be against. And that students, instead of learning that the culture that they inherit is good, that they have this this rich inheritance that they sh should defend and that they themselves become um, 
torch bearers. Students can come to learn to attack the bad culture, right? Learning that it's bad and thus learning to attack it, rather than learning that it's good and thus to defend it. But this does not renew civilization. Um, it can, you might say that it remakes it. But it's also, I always take this really big historical lens that whenever whenever we have these kinds of revolutionary impulses, we have to consider the worst possible scenario, which would be something like just a return to the state of nature, thus the, the end of civilization. And so we need culture in a general sense, or cultures in a... You know, in, a, in, a, in a plural sense, that maintain, uphold, and defend civilization. Otherwise, we may risk breaking the social contract in a general sense. So let me retrace these phases a little bit more and try to add a little more detail. In this first phase that I'm suggesting someone like Bagley and certainly Stearns, whom we'll get to, we can say that Certainly in an American context, it, in thinking about, you know, the sort of original educational model, that it was Christian. And, you know, thinking of this, this, the three phases in a religious sense, moving from Christian to just being secular. Perhaps not fully anticipating the vacuum that is created by that. Again, this also, in, in, the contours are similar to the death of God in Nietzsche. And then in the third phase, we might say that there's something like a new, paradoxically, a new secular god um, that becomes its own religion, its own object of worship, its own rites of passage. And perhaps it this namely occurs via Freire and um, in, 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 a, in a Marxian form. And it's a you might describe it as, as like an inverted Christianity in that it seeks to immanentize the eschaton, which basically means something like bringing heaven on earth. So the, the first phase is certainly the most teacher-centered, that it's nationalistic or pro-Western and Christian and pro-capitalist, that there's a, but also that there's a, there's a full faith in the curriculum. And also in the teachers who deliver that curriculum. And then the second phase is, you know, is certainly going to be a little bit more. I mean, this is the the ascendant student centeredness and the diminishing teacher centeredness. That again is simply not nationalistic. It's non-Western. It's not Christian. And so, moving from this full faith in the curriculum, that there are a lot of questioning of the curriculum, and then even. A, like doubt in in the curriculum itself, and again, it this it may have been thought or felt that this second phase was terminal or was the terminus that it that perhaps it thought of itself as the end, something like the end of history. But it's not because of the vacuum that it creates. This sort of secular vacuum that, in a sense, cannot maintain itself as fully full and then again in the third phase i'm kind of reiterating not 
not nationalistic Western Christian pro-capitalist, not just not being those things, but actually being against them, being anti-nationalistic, anti-Western, I mentioned anti-canon, anti-Christian. That these things are renounced and then denounced in curricular forms. So this would be the most student-centered form, this third phase. And interestingly, it's this advent of a new post-secular faith. Certainly attended to this is something like scientism. Uh, this, uh, almost an, an unrational and uncritical devotion to science, which is itself prided on its method that is critical and rational. And I've also been talking a little bit about education inflation and this concern that in a sense, people are more educated than ever, but they're not better educated. And so this introduces, in simplest terms, uh, a quantity-quality distinction. That we've certainly vastly increased the quantity, not only in terms of, like thinking about the Industrial Revolution, not only in terms of how many people are being educated, basically everyone goes through K-12 to and um, more than ever are going to university, though perhaps that's just starting to decline now. It's a more of an emphasis on quantity rather than quality, or pedagog pedagogies that that support and sustain a quantity model rather than a quality model. But we can also I was trying to use an analogy about thinking of like a liquid commodity, in the sense that there's was such a high demand in education because it it was descriptively kind of rich and thick and syrupy, and that a little bit of this high quality education will go really far but because of the uh, almost excruciating demand for education and then you know a sense that everyone needs to get an education everyone has a right to an education that in a sense something that happened through these phases is that something was diluted or watered down sometimes this is also expressed in a more of a pejorative sense of dumbing things down and in order to make I mean we have a, a broad spectrum of different intellectual capacities and for everyone to succeed in education uh, that there are some concessions that have to be made okay so changing gears a little bit and moving into a different well let me stay on this education as a right just for a moment before i talk about um, this next subtopic mandating that everyone must get a, a high school diploma for example right and education being thought of as a right like i mentioned that it's not that education is not a privilege that someone can lose if they you know if they aren't if they don't behave responsibly in some way and so what happens is that in a general sense responsibility diminishes and also shifts to where Perhaps in this third phase where instead of the student being responsible for their own learning, the teacher is responsible to ensure the learning of students. Like as a teacher, it's my job to make sure that every student learns everything. And a natural consequence is that students' responsibility can diminish insofar as responsibility becomes more concentrated upon the teacher. And then um, this can sort of become almost retroactively justified by 
new age student-centered type ideas and so since students are not in a sense expected or the same level of responsibility isn't demanded of them then then any kind of pedagogy that justifies some sort of free play um that that becomes lauded or celebrated that there, there there's a critique here that that is in a sense a code for something it's it's coding or something like sugar coating irresponsibility and i want to also make a, a point here that anyone um with educational access that they can access educational experiences outside of school both in terms of character um, as well as in terms of knowledge acquisition people who have access to those kinds of experiences outside of school become the ultimate winners here so this leads into the equality problem so people who develop character they you know these kind of traditional virtues of you know hard work and, and things like that um, and not just character in, in those terms um, and, and being sort of decent being upright so things like that but also in terms of learning actual knowledge and becoming something like smart so the families communities um, thinking not only of the family of parents and children but the, a broader sense of family is multi-generational um, like something like strong close-knit families um, that are a part of a larger community the the families that are most able to compensate for this increasingly diluted watery kind of academic increasingly less academic experience in school that in a sense does not demand or inculcate the same level of responsibility for students so the whosoever can compensate for that it leads only to a higher concentration of more cultural capital in the hands of fewer and fewer people so what i'm suggesting here is something like something like an inequality paradox that the more in an educational philosophy emphasizes equality and making people equal and equal access equal opportunity increasingly then then this evolving into equity and equal outcomes that in a sense it fails like it, it's self-defeating i suppose so we expand education we have more education for more students and there's a sense certainly in, in bagley i think and in stearns that you simply have to lower standards and that it doesn't really have to be and i think that's just descriptive that's not normatively pejorative that just means well lowering standards doesn't really have to be you know the end or the death of education or culture it could be sort of more aimed at a general audience and doesn't make it bad necessarily and this notion of pro probably coming from equality like the equality side of rousseau of dealing with education as a right rather than as a privilege um, whereas someone like Locke in a teacher-centered tradition might think of it um, more in terms of, of a privilege um, as, a, as a manifestation of individual liberty.
So just to just to recap, I think that under a, a teacher-centered, at least in this tr- more traditional, old-school kind of way, um, education as a privilege rather than as a right, right? Because you can't lose your rights based on something like poor performance. I mean, you, you can lose you can you can lose your rights and be you know, incarcerated and to be in prison based on you know things that you've done, but not really for you can't really lose your rights. I mean, rights are really powerful and durable, and you don't lose all of your rights in, in prison, of course, in this kind of clumsy example. But simply for, for something like, um, you know, for poor academic performance, it doesn't really seem to rise to the level of what would be required to deprive a citizen of their rights. So certainly in, in the student-centered model, education is seen as a right and not as a privilege. So what can happen is that the sort of the, the best and brightest, most hardworking students are often not really challenged um, by the education experience. And the, it becomes less of a challenge. It can become easier. And there's, again, a very, again, we're, we're kind of working in the 1930s here, and there's a sense that if it's not challenging and if it's too easy, then we're going to have weak graduates who are not well-educated. So, I mean, from a teacher-centered perspective, we need, we need a challenge. We need it to be hard in order to have strong graduates who are well-educated. Not just strong unto themselves as a well-educated individual possessing reason and liberty, but also in a more general sense. They have to be strong enough to uphold our, a democracy and a, a free market capitalistic sort of world order. Right, like the democratic world order. So, of course, um, of course, very high standards still exist in education, but are uh, arguably applied more unevenly, less evenly than ever. And so, this uneven application is what I'm talking about in terms of how um, the general idea here is that schools, public education, ceases to ceases to kind of evenly distribute cultural capital and that strangely this the inequality emphasis actually further concentrates these these kinds of things um, the demand for high achievement left schools and left many homes too and um, but often where we see these 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 demands for really high achievement it's mostly in individual parents rather than as part of the school system. And certainly competition as a concept is still relevant. Um, students together, I mean, they don't really act as competitors per se, uh, except for specific things like you know, awards, prizes. Um, but also um, there's this sense of that, that uh, just think of students and graduates as the next generation and that are going to have to be strong and, and again it's hard to define exactly whatever strong means but um, again taking this international perspective of other nations um, you know aggressive expansionist you know totalitarian states and um, that if conflicts arise in the international stage there are certain things that we need to be able to demand and require of citizens 
And so there's a concern here that it may seem like a strange connection, but that a decline in certain academic standards in school and an emphasis on something like citizenship education um, or that um, character education that aligns with, with what with what a democracy needs from its citizens in order to, for example, in order to defend itself and thus in order to maintain, um, you know, free markets and, and democracy and, and in terms of those are things that we, that we may value. Okay, moving on. So it's more a matter of, you know, putting a premium on something like excellence and a sense that students will rise to the level of parental or, or scholastic demands. But again, if the scholastic demands fall, then what's left is rising to the level of parental expectations increasingly. Whereas I think this used to be more shared, that teachers and parents together were kind of a unifying force in demanding scholastic achievement or even expecting excellence and this it it may be true of human nature that that anyone but let's just say students in this example that students will rise to the level of the challenge to the level of the contest that high expectations promote high achievement and that lowering expectations um, lowers achievement so I talked a little bit about effort and interest. Effort in interest is not effort at all. So in the sense that, well, kids aren't going to, they're not going to apply effort in things they're not interested in. But there's a sense here that, that that's a misnomer, that that's actually not effort. It's still just inclination. You might say that it is a, a lower or baser form of freedom. It's not the high freedom of liberty. Again, thinking of this Rousseauian trade-off of, trading liberty for equality and how how does it work and well i mean the worst case scenario of it not working would be that you know you're trading some liberty for more equality and you end up with neither so teacher centeredness would emphasize this painstaking studentship in exact and exacting educational studies and th that experience of you know painstaking exact and exacting certainly i mean of course, this obviously still exists, but increasingly, I was talking about parents, but also I should should mention that some students are really ambitious. They might be competitive, they want to be the best, um, or they just really want to do well. They've just got some, what we call intrinsic motivation. And some schools are still quite teacher-centered, and I've talked about how in, when it comes down to individual teaching practice, I think a lot of teachers have this TVSC thing that they're both student-centered and teacher-centered. But, you know, the problem in the harshest form of the argument is that the best teachers are the best teachers, not because of the current state of pedagogy and teacher training, rather in spite of it. So it's by ignoring or uh, rejecting or kind of politely nodding and going along with the, the ideas about teaching that are coming down from theory and from pedagogy. But the greatness of their teaching in some cases may lie in the distance that they take from that but interestingly I, I mean i'm trying to suggest that they still wouldn't identify as being teacher-centered teachers just because i think it would be it's almost like a would be like a bad word a bad phrase 
So I think a lot of teachers think themselves as not really being totally student-centered, right? So they would think of their teaching identity negatively, but most will identify with student-centeredness and that they avoid or ignore the kind of quote-unquote BS. So even though there are still some some well-intact teaching practices of you know, belonging to teachers, practitioners, and you know there are some ambitious students. Still, I I want to maintain that the defining marker is parents. That that is where high expectations are coming from. That in a sense they've migrated from this shared parent-teacher alliance, and um, partly due to you know equality emphases in pedagogy. And so increasingly, it's, it's really up to parents to ensure that their kids get a great education, even though education will say, I mean, teachers have now taken on much more responsibility and, in a sense, lower standards, lower expectations in schools. So if a certain course is too hard, the, the teacher-centered response is basically that the students have to really apply themselves. They have to try and work harder, that they're their current level of attainment is just not good enough. And it seems really kind of harsh and cruel. Um, and there may, in, in the inverse, student-centeredness, to, there, there's a desire to want to make it easier, right? To modify, to differentiate, to, to use ideas um, like UDL, Universal Design for Learning. And the harshest critique of this uh, tendency would be this to, to suggest that there's a whole sub-discipline in pedagogy uh, to make watering down, diluting, or dumbing down, to make it sound palatable by, by kind of dressing it up in a technical vocabulary and the sort of the jargon of pedagogy, lipstick on a pig, so to speak, to make this palatable and to make it sound sophisticated. Um, and a lot of that is by sounding caring and compassionate and sympathetic or empathetic. Um, I mean, also we're going to hear about accommodation and accessibility, even words like, you know, things that must be relevant and responsive and an emphasis on skills. Uh, a lot of it all represents uh, this move away from hard, abstract work in schools. So not so basically in a general aggregate sense you actually have less people that are capable of doing really hard really abstract kind of thinking or or later in life work. Of course students still do still still doing work but so that this becomes in a sense even further concentrated and even fewer, it becomes even more of a privilege, you might say. So lowering standards are making things easier for students. Um, and part of this has to do with schools abandoning the threat or the risk of failure. And Bailey described this as a stimulus. He acknowledges that failing someone or holding someone back a grade is really not a good thing to do, but but he's also seemingly at a loss for, well, what else are we supposed to do? Like, in order to 
how do we maintain standards without it, even though it, you know, basically it sucks to fail someone, to hold someone back. But if we completely stop doing it, we might get an even worse result. So we need to keep high standards. And the, the problem is that it's so hard to keep education hard. And you can think of this in terms of, simply in terms of gravity. It's really hard to raise something up because of the resistance. But it's really easy to lower something because there's no resistance. You've got gravity pulling things down. And so I keep coming back to this, that this, this, this lowering, this relaxing of standards and expectations puts an undue burden on parents. Nevertheless, those parents who meet the challenge enjoy um, unequally or unequitably successful adult children. That more and more, again, removing responsibility in schools from students, placing more responsibility on teachers um, as, as a part of this, Again, it's so basically, you know, good, stable two parent homes, um, especially if they've got other other extended family uh, in the picture helping and they've got, you know, communities even outside of the home that are supporting education in its most general sense, socializing uh, in terms of character and just in terms of knowledge and becoming smarter that it actually strangely be, makes for a less equal playing field. So who does it help? Well, the, the most pessimistic answer is no one. Making, basically making school easier doesn't help anybody. But it feels good for everyone in the short term. That, again, we want to think of ourselves as being really kind and caring and compassionate and you know enforcing strict, rigid standards and having this this potential looming threat of failure it just doesn't seem very kind and loving of course i think in a mature sense we know that it is that i mean it would give me tremendous distress to think about you know failing someone and and what it could mean and that it you know um that it could in a sense be a painful experience and of course when you've got someone that you care about you want to remove painful experiences but you don't want to take away the possible like the learning opportunity um that you know sometimes painful experiences can can bring and again if we think of people as anti-fragile then we won't be so worried about you know, uh, failing someone in the sense that, you know, in a more therapeutic sense, a worry that it's going to cause some sort of, you know, psychological harm and, you know, create some sort of a complex and a need for therapy, etc. So the sense, the, the different answer of who does it help, rather than just saying no one, there's a, there's a notion that it helps middle and upper class stable two-parent homes, again, multi-generational and cooperative um, and that they further outpace everyone else, that they're able to compensate for the lack of real cultural capital, like real value in school. Um, they can make up for it elsewhere. 
So the argument here is that it, it, equality initiatives in schools don't serve equality at all. Even at the cost of liberty, it further concentrates higher forms of freedom into a smaller elite. Um, again, parental expectations that are driving a kind of a diligent, motivated, competent, well-educated elite. That this is less... It's less obtained through education. It's less, it's less disseminated and less received. And uh, lower middle income class families who rely on education to keep these margins small, that they're relying on education for a competitive advantage in some way, right? That you can be just as educated as them and thus you can be just as successful and just as happy as them. Right, that education is a force for social upward mobility. And if it isn't, um, if you can be just as educated in terms of the, the years of schooling in institutions, um, but not have developed to the same extent based on these you know, wide disparities in family and home life, then the sense is that the people for whom equality initiatives are meant to serve are end up hurt by them the most. Again, paradoxically. So kids, in the end, who don't become competitive because they don't have, I'm going to use some, some ITC terms here, cognitive repertoire, a regime of attention, effort against interest, right, working hard even when you don't feel like it. Uh, kids who, in the end, do not become or would not be Graduates, we wouldn't describe as being diligent, motivated, competent, well-educated, uh, or simply as not in that elite. An elite doesn't have to, have, you know, be some loaded word that, you know, the best in anything are the elite, the upper percentile, the most best educated people, for example. Um, and that they don't gain these attributes from school, nor do they get them from elsewhere. And so the slack isn't picked up, that there's no compensatory mechanism in a lot of perhaps in basically in the majority if we're talking about thinking of lower middle class versus upper middle class then that's the majority if it doesn't serve the majority if it doesn't serve the common good how can it be equal now i mentioned therapy Spending 20 years in a more therapeutic environment that's largely consequence-free and doesn't have this feature of failure or the threat of failure as a consequence, you know, that, again, that seems cruel. And, but the, the inherent lesson is that, you know, if you don't do it well, then you have to try again. Not accepting something not being done know less than well or, or good and again i, I mentioned a, you know uh, an environment that puts a premium on creativity so people from lower to middle income houses who go through public education in a largely therapeutic consequence-free environment that puts a premium on creativity in the end they discover that they are basically really far behind a lot of other people. Again, in the sense, people from the same schools, but people from very different families. And those graduates who find that they are, in a sense, not competitive in a global marketplace, 
may, interestingly, come to feel that that system of education that was ostensibly for them is really unfair. Right, I got this education. It doesn't seem to have a lot of value, and student debt has been a, a huge topic lately as well. So I, I was in this, um, you know, this therapeutic, creative, you know, open experiential situation, and um, the way that informs uh, character and uh, knowledgeability, and. You know, people can feel that they've been cheated of a, of a sort of a robust educational experience in the end, um, even though it was what they wanted at the time, so to speak. This goes back to um, you know, immediate versus delayed gratification. If schools don't put something like delayed gratification front and center in terms of a kind of an essential feature of civilization. Some people are going to get it somewhere else, and some people aren't. But the, the purpose of a public education for the common good, ultimately in the service of democracy and producing you know, citizens, due to misguided attempts to make that very same system more fair, um, that it can actually end up, like, you know, to, to risk this phrase, something like no child left behind only ensures that some people are left further behind and some people get even further ahead in comparison. So public education cannot be the big equalizer anymore in this phase. And that achievement gaps only become wider and wider. Why are they becoming wider and wider? Why are there the achievement gaps? Why is an education um, acting and, and serving as an equalizer? Right, equalizing um, chances, opportunities for success, because it emphasizes equality. Strangely enough, okay. So, lowering standards and expectations. Um, there's a lot of a lot of linguistic and rhetorical um, discussion. Uh, I mentioned something like "no child left behind." that in a sense this makes an emotional appeal um of course it's a specific policy initiative but no child left behind right it makes an emotional appeal and it has a a kind of a thematic overlap with with these in a sense with these new high virtues in pedagogy like accessibility and accommodations that learners are diverse um, that they're not all capable necessarily of exact and exacting painstaking studentship and thus it's it's not fair to have those these really high academic scholastic standards right that they're that they become exclusionary that they're not fair or, or in a sense that they're not equal and again the the invention of a whole vocabulary of universal design and differentiation and scaffolding making things engaging and hands-on it may not i mean it may actually be the best education for the best and brightest students that and they will seek their own intellectual stimulation and that they do that the best students are kind of left to their own devices and in many ways can thrive. Like when you put 
intelligent, motivated people into a into a pretty like creative and free, open environment that they can really thrive. But strangely, again, like if this is if this is meant for equality or to to correct past inequalities, and and you you create a, a free and open learning environment that it really only serves like the best students like the most intrinsically motivated or the, those students who get the most support at home. And it becomes quite commonplace that teachers actually focused most on um, on like the lowest learners, uh, the lowest level of learning. And there's not nearly as much, I mean, w like one-on-one -on -one time is not really very equally applied it's more equitably applied and what we would like one-on-one -on -one, like additional support for students who are like exceeding who are excelling or the best and brightest we would call that enrichment and um we could also call that differentiating up that typically we're typically teachers are focused on those lowest level learners and they're differentiating down making things easier making accommodations making the learning more accessible so to speak and certainly not giving as much one-on-one -on -one time to the best and brightest and those people end up sort of increasingly being left to their own devices and i think in many in many cases they can they can become bored but they can also thrive it really depends on a lot of factors but so this isn't necessarily a problem but it it may be inefficient in the sense that teachers are spending less time on the most receptive learners and most of their time is spent on the least receptive now if for an equality model i think well no that's that's an equity model Tr like treating everyone equally for example that every student should get the equal amount of one-on-one -on -one attention that would be equality um, but basically i think education is mostly in more of an equity model so just strictly in, in the way that this is being set up it's you could say that this is maximally inefficient spending the least time on the most receptive learners and spending the most time on the least receptive learners so I mean, efficiency may not necessarily be a virtue for the equity-minded, but we don't we we don't want this leveling down effect where, whether we're talking about equality or equity, that it just means that things become like equally easier. Leveling down, like I said, or watering down, diluting, etc. Okay. So let me just recap this, and um, before I finish with the like with some final comments on um, equity equality, um, let me just reiterate this: that this TVSC, okay, Teacher Center TC, teaches in a, in a broad sense, thinking back to you know culture, that the status quo is basically good, and that what the the person that would be considered smart really knows a lot. Um, they've acquired a lot of knowledge about both the sort of timeless human story and also about, you know, 
timely, you know, current relevant affairs and developments. So there's a grasp of then and now. And the sense of character is something like a, like disciplined reason, but also an obligation that, that one is going to defend culture, as a, that that would be a virtue, defending culture. Not just the inverse, student-centeredness. The status quo is bad. There's a focus on you know injustice and inequality, racism, sexism, etc. And so smart in that sense would be something like knowing that things are bad, right? And sort of being alive to, uh, or that term that you hear is woke, about this sort of timelessness of oppression and injustice. So it's not, it's not much there to struggle for and to grasp for, right? In a sense, student-centeredness is not an intellectual movement. You might say that it's psychological, but also... Uh, psychological, but also, in a sense, Marxist, I think we just have to say. And the thing is that it's not a matter of, like, struggling to know and to understand things, that the answers are known. It's as if, like, all of the knowledge that you might be seeking, I mean, it's all just so obvious, according to, a, basically, to a particular theories that are available. And then again, instead of you know, struggling to understand, you know, the, kind of the something like the history of everything, how we got here and where we are, there is in its place a, a false and unearned moral clarity that there are easy answers. So what what, what do we what are the hard, difficult truths that we need to struggle for um, and, to, and to, to come to grips with and to grapple with and to, to eventually come to understand? Um, you don't need that when you already have the easy answers. And... Character is also, in a sense, divine, uh, defined in an inverted way. Instead of the, the TC character of discipline, reason, and that to defend culture is a virtue, the SC character is passionate activism rather than discipline, reason. And again, to defend culture is not a virtue. To attack culture is a virtue. So even though I'm, I'm situating TC and SC as opposites, I'm still advocating for... TVSC, teacher versus student-centeredness, that education has to try to take the best of both worlds and abandon the worst of both worlds, and that that is how it has to continue to improve itself. Okay, so wrapping up, coming back to this uh, equity-equality, any critique of equality or equity is basically the the soft bigotry argument okay, originally from soul and there's kind of a knee-jerk reaction that if you're like like are you really criticizing equality are you really criticizing you're against equity like how dare you uh, to be against it must mean that you just want to preserve privilege for the few but the point I'm trying to make is that the opposite is true that equality in education levels it down um, whereas a solid public education system that disseminates knowledge and disperses cultural capital actually promotes social equality 
So in a sense, I think we would actually be better served by dropping this whole kind of confusing language of equality and equity. Um, a better focus, I think, uh, and probably a better way to talk about or to structure the conversation is focusing on the public good or uh, the, the collective good, focusing on the majority. But again, this, um, the, the, the equality, equity emphasis may in a strange sense be self-defeating or self-undermining. Even, even, you know, to, to try to use a more specific example, kids who go to school who learn about equality or inequality or equity or inequities, they may be deprived of a much more enriching educational experience. Yet, again, kids from families who can compensate for um, a weak public education, again, we're thinking upper middle class, gain more and more advantage. Especially because, you know, thinking back to Postman and thermostatic education, that it has to offset, it has to supply things that are not in the culture. So if you've got a culture, let's just say, for example, a culture where people are obsessed with equality, and then kids go to school and learn about equality, that's all they ever hear about that education really has to be something like a world apart and then you get different experiences you can you learn and hear different things so an, an education that neil postman talks about this uh, an education that is increasingly more like television that it comes to mirror and, and reflect and echo popular culture it's basically doing the exact opposite of what it should be doing it needs to offset, counterweight, counterbalance. Okay, kids from families who can compensate for weak public education, upper middle class, gain ever more advantage. The kids from lower middle class families reliant upon public schools to level up in some way are most hurt. That is, equality and equity most negatively affects those whom it ought to help or raise up. And in the end, putting it bluntly, it will probably be um, rich, whites and Asians. I think both male and female, I'm not going to make a, say, a gender disparity there, that white and Asian men are particularly well served by this any more than uh, white and Asian females, who in a sense may be most helped in the end with a kind of a competitive advantage over everyone else. In uh, public education, without ways to compensate for its shortfalls. Now, it doesn't really have to have this, you know, the, the sole race and gender component is, um, it's just kind of used for convenience. Really, it's this emphasis on um, family and community. Some sense of like a, a strong family, strong community life. People, the people coming up with equity arguments are almost exclusively middle to upper class. And if those if, if, if they are, in a sense, failed by public education, um, they'll be fine. And again, I just want to touch back upon this, this notion of a new form of character education, uh, again, that fills the secular gap from Christianity and the, the vacuum of secular education that moved away from Christianity, in the end, becomes replaced with something like activism, that, in a sense, kids 
need to become change agents and they learn to become activists in schools. Um, I mean, I think that the, the, the jury is still out. We don't yet have a verdict in terms of two kids from lower middle class families who uh, become activists, um, who more intensely experience a sense of outrage. Um, to what extent is that going to help them to compete against everyone else? It, it just in the sense of, uh, uh, in terms of economic success. So, strangely, what happens in almost uh, kind of a perverse outcome of this is that it puts even more of a premium on, let's just say, families that already have cultural capital, that they're able to weather, uh, they're, they're able to compensate um, for um, an education that isn't, you know, that, for example, that they're able to acquire knowledge outside of schools. Those who can acquire knowledge outside of schools are going to do better than anybody else. Those who rely on school for the acquisition of knowledge are going to be most hurt by it. So equity is not simply an effort to fix inequality, but the way it's being practiced. And also, in this sense, as a way to entrench inequality. In the sense here, I suppose, this seems strange, but that equity makes things less equal. And I guess that's partly by design to an extent. Instead, education should guarantee a common level of cultural capital. In a sense, equal access to liberty, to higher forms of freedom. And so by making education free, open, creative, I say, I say free, I mean freedom, not as having no cost. That's something that they can afford. The upper middle class people advocating for this new kind of, you know, equity type model in schools. Strangely, if they are upper middle class, they are the ones who can afford having some kind of um, activistic, uh, kind of a kind of an immature political experience in schools um, because they can make up for the other things. They can make up for you know the rest of what the curriculum would would have been, and so it's something that they can afford in this sense that they can compensate for it. But low middle class single parents, um, they can't they can't as easily compensate or make up for this. They need public education for real value. Okay, so those are kind of my my general comments, and now I want to switch over to Stearns. Uh, before I do, let me just make one more point, one more kind of topical point before turning to the 1935 text. Uh, just today, the, the Barry Weiss Honestly podcast, um, she had, I believe, Bill Barr, and um, there's this, you know, this great quote, and it, it jumped out at me um, because I've been talking about Bertrand Russell's use of the phrase, the, the greatest danger, the greatest danger, uh, talking about, you know, basically talking about Dewey and cosmic impiety and, and, a, and a decline in citizenship education. Anyway, uh, Bill Barr said, um, again, today on the Barry Weiss Honestly podcast, the, the greatest threat to the country is the radical progressive movement and what it's degenerated into. The, that country being America, 
right, the greatest threat to America is the radical progressive movement and what it's degenerated into. It's around the 56 minute mark. So in an educational context, this same movement, radical progressive movement, and of course in education in this lit review, progressive is, I mean, is self same with Dewey, is a threat to education. A more extreme interpretation would be something like, well, that that this greatest threat is fomented in education. That education is a sense, the delivery mechanism of this radical radical progressive movement, as Bill Barr says, um, that that is how it's, that's basically the pipeline of the radical progressive movement into the country. Um, so I don't know, I can't put words in his mouth, but... Um, to what extent is is education itself the greatest threat? Kind of uh, anyway, an interesting question. Another a topical um, a topical little side street there. Okay, so coming to Stearns here. Just give me one moment, please. Okay, sorry about that. Uh, Stearns. Stearns suggests that... Oh, sorry. Stearns suggests that the deep distrust of education comes from our opening the door to expert opinion. That we indulged the idea that we ought to teach them practical things, then admitted that some can only learn practical things, and then doubted if old-fashioned book learning was relevant at all. Anti-book learning pro-practical things experts have ultimately hurt education for Stearns despite pretensions to progressivism. Now there was no way to know in 1935 how this was arguably the death knell of the university but right, right later in 1970 early 1970s knew this well as did other you know there's Similar critics come later with similar ideas like Bloom and Bellow. Um, and the argument there that emerges later is that professors succumbed to counterculture with a desperate desire to remain relevant by changing the curriculum to what students felt was relevant. And that relevance won. And arguably, certainly for someone like Stearns and company, relevance won and we all lost. And Postman, uh, who I've talked about, offers a better way to think about relevance, too, in terms of thermostasis. So Stearns, Bagley, Kilpatrick, all around the same time, all um, making similar arguments. There's a great phrase uh, from Stearns. Stearns talks about this both in terms of teachers coming into the profession and the experience of students. He says that these the ways that education has changed, what he calls the new way, um, and I'll get to what that means, but he says that what, it only serves to dampen the ardor. It dampens the ardor. Uh, you could also say that it, it causes education to lose its luster, that it becomes less attractive and less appealing to both 
teachers and to students. So less attractive to potential teachers that, um, you know, the, the stupefying influence of education schools and how a lot of people just knowing that what ed schools are sort of all about. And, um, and I think a sense that some people in the population of us have a, have a notion that teaching is very kind of, kind of soft and warm and touchy feely, um, that it's not really, um, that it's not suited to people who want like an intellectual challenge in their, like from their professional life. Certainly it's, it's, it's seen as an emotional challenge to be a good teacher you need endless and infinite patience, etc. Not that you really need to know a lot about whatever you're teaching. So anyway, um, we'll see that. But it, stamp, it dampens the ardor. The dampening of the ardor, which is also something like a, a cooling of a passion that one might have for education. As much as education is always talking about passion, that it comes up a lot, and in culture generally, that education loses its luster, that the bloom is off the rose, so to speak. Um, and he really begins with a, with a really sharp criticism of Teachers College. Uh, quote, the rapidly changing terms in which this new gospel of living clothes itself make it difficult for us at any given time to properly label it. But it is all summed up in the term probably most often used by its apostles and prophets in somewhat recent years self-expression no term can better describe it so this is what he calls the new gospel of living and uh he certainly considers it as a a general you know cultural problem um but also there's a there's a great emphasis on on how it manifests in education and uh philip rife some 40 years later is going to use the the term the endless expressional quest obviously the word expression here in both that self-expression is, in a sense, the problem. and uh, Or that there's a sort of an endless expressional quest that people are on. And again, it has a lot to do with, um, I've talked about the, the sort of therapeutic emphasis of you know expressing yourself. But it's also important, and I'll touch on this more later, but that the student, in terms of acquiring knowledge, is in the position of, you know, something going in, right? Freire will just hate on this as the banking model the teachers just putting like just depositing knowledge into these empty passive bank account brains but in that mode in the teacher center mode it's very much predicated upon um you know putting something in in inputting um whereas expression is all about outputting right i mean expressing your feelings you take something that's inside you and you put it out whereas knowledge acquisition is taking something outside you and putting it in they're just so in this sense you can think of these two different um, modalities the best way to think about it in terms of is in terms of transmitting and receiving okay uh, and since it is easier to destroy than to build its critical attitude is purely destructive so what does what else does self-expression do? It's destructive. Uh, self-expression again, this new gospel of living. It asks us to taboo discipline. Again, I talked about. I want to reiterate discipline in terms of something that is imposed only until it can be self-imposed. 
Quote, Reports of this generally distressing character come to us daily from every corner of the land. Yet we have been blind to the fact that for a number of years we have been steadily preparing our soil for just such a harvest of tares. The new philosophy has sapped that soil of its natural richness. Quote, the old home was a center of authority and discipline. The word of the parent was final and obeyed. Authority and discipline are conspicuously lacking in the home of today. Parents have surrendered, and children increasingly have the final word. Continuing, duty has been supplanted by rights, whatever rights may mean. And the innocent and tragic sufferers are the plastic children, naturally and spontaneously responding to their immediate environment and the influences about them. The loss of ideals, and of the sense of the necessity of sacrifice and service for the common and greater good, and the shifting of emphasis from duty to rights, have undermined the basic foundations. Stearns characterized both chivalry and religion as having an ennobling effect on people and upon society, and their decline has not been replaced by anything else of greater or even equal value. Ideals, restraints, inspiration, giving sanctity and beauty, making duty sacred, glorifying the home or the woman on the part of the man, all of this served to give meaning and purpose to life. Heroic deeds, noble themes, adventurous achievement, glad sacrifice, attitudes of respect and reverence and worship are all increasingly hard to find in our modern world. Considering this is about 90 years ago, we might say in our postmodern world. So in an educational sense, we could say that education needs to be more like a hero's journey um, in the sense that there are, you know, challenges, trials, and tribulations that have to be overcome. And overcoming is kind of the... Uh, the, the essential point of Stern's philosophy here. And uh, that an education that is based on overcoming really difficult challenges um, would possibly be more interesting to boys. There's a problem, um, I mean, there, there, there's a concern that, uh, that with the ways in which education has changed, that it better suits female students and that it doesn't serve male students as well. And this could be because, you know, it's more cooperative, less competitive, um, but also that it may not offer these same kinds of opportunities um, as you might find on a sort of a hero's journey. Certainly along a hero's journey, there are some uh, safe spaces, but they're few and far between. So the distinct absence of a traditionally conservative tendency is pronounced. The question of the unintended consequences vis-a-vis -vis what of goodness may be lost in any desired change for something new. And the cleaving of liberal and conservative means that only reforms without foresight or status quo without improvements are the only two ways. This is a crystalline example of the paradox that now the only way forward is back. That regression back to what we had 
where these two tendencies would tolerate one another in order to get what they needed from another in a pollinate sense. So, on the one hand, go to school and do your duty in a, in a teacher-centered mode versus go to school and enjoy and exercise your rights in this contrast of duty and rights. But uh, let me linger on this uh, liberal conservative thing here too. Um, that when we don't have these two forces, liberal, conservative, or in an educational sense, uh, TC and SC, when you don't have them working together, they each, when they don't communicate with each other, they just each have a kind of a, a caricature of one another. Um, that, you know, the conservatives think all you want to do is forge ahead without any consideration of the consequences. And, you know, you're eager and willing to just destroy all the great, amazing things that we have. And then the liberal thinks of the conservative that, you know, all you want to do is just go back into the past, you know, like, uh, you know, where, where you think everything was perfect, but it wasn't right. So you like, they each think of the other, all you want to do is go ahead in a way that's not good. And all you want to do is go backwards in a way that's not good. Okay. In his first sentence on the school, Stern's notes, correctly, in my opinion, that the school must aid the family in the development of dependable citizenship and character. Yet, American public schools, despite being, quote, so generously supported at public expense, have been undermined by a new philosophy at work. Again, this is the self-expression philosophy, or the endless expression request. EEQ, endless expression request, Philip Reif. And again, I'll talk about this... This, this giving and receiving thing. So student-centered is based on sending, like broadcasting out your feelings. Whereas teacher-centeredness is based on receiving of this input of knowledge. Again, I think that teacher-centered education, we can't try to dodge this critique by Paulo Freire, who might say, oh, this banking model, all you want to do is just put knowledge in kids' heads and kind of bite the bullet and kind of say, yeah, uh, putting knowledge in someone's head it's not just something to like dismiss or poo-poo. It's uh, really hard and it's really important and it's it's part of education. And no, it's not it's not all we care about or all we want to do. And you know, apprenticing knowledge from a master isn't some passive thing where oh you're just sitting there like listening. Yeah, but like that can also be a really an, an intense experience. Something that's not understood. Basically, teacher center would say, yes, fine. If you want to call it the banking model, fine. If you want to just dismiss it out of hand because you think it's bad, fine. But yeah, uh, knowledge acquisition is good, not bad. Anyway, so in this contrast, the student-centeredness is predicated on giving something. Like, for example, like giving your opinion, giving your thoughts and feelings on a matter. Teacher-centeredness is predicated on getting something, right? Getting, uh, getting or gaining or, you know, again, receiving. Like getting an inheritance, right? A great inheritance of historical, empirical, and theoretical knowledge. Okay. So the endless expression is a kind of a broadcast. It's not a receiver. And thus the transmission originally meant to flow from culture from the mature generation, that is through parent, teacher, to student, 
is indeed undermined. Right, that the student-centered student is not receptive to learning from the mature generation. It's a breakdown. And skeptics and critics of what occurs in schools have never been in short supply, but it seems the distrust has only grown. Boy, is that ever true? The new change happened so subtly and so quickly, and of course originates from a modest thesis. As populations moved from country to city and new practical subjects emerged, some of the ostensibly old-fashioned book learning had to make room. And almost in the same breath, it was suggested that some students couldn't profit from books at all, and that books were impractical, and thus only practical subjects should be taught. Practical skills. So, and when we hear practical in Stearns, we should be thinking of skills today. There's a big skills emphasis in education and also upon outcomes. At the end of this class or course, what should that student be able to do? And whatever appeals to voters of any given historical moment enters educational vogue. And this is a violation of the thermostatic view that if education just becomes a mere copy of the culture and, and not, in a sense, I, I always think of the phrase, a world apart, then it's basically redundant. All the things that you learn about out in the world, um, and then you come into school and you continue to experience the same kinds of topics and stimuli, what's the point? That these things need to be different. I like the uh, the physical ad, uh, example of thermostatic, that in an extremely like physically active, like in, in a physical culture, um, education should be very kind of academic. And in a very sedentary culture where people are, you know, basically engaging with technology, like screen time, education should be much more physical. I mean, I mean, if, if someone suggested that half of the school day should be physical um like as an initiative as something to try i would say yeah absolutely that would be great perhaps maybe not 50 50 you might say something like um maybe 60 percent pe for boys and 40 percent for girls something like that um anyway but certainly as so for example as a society becomes let's say less physically active school should become more physically active and, and and true of like of anything else right so that's again the, the thermostatic view of education as um, as an, a kind of an offsetting balancing mechanism and I talked earlier about you know if a society becomes completely obsessed with something like racism um, then schools also become just a manifestation of the same topics and it just becomes a mere reflection like I said it can almost be a redundancy. Okay. So, whatever appeals to voters of any given historical moment enters educational vogue, and all kinds of fads and fancies have been foisted upon the patient and too often uninformed taxpayer. Right, the taxpayer, the the, the generous support uh, of at public expense that. People are too patient and too uninformed, but like, basically, taxpayers 
need to know what's going on in school more and to demand the kinds of things that they want to see in schools. This unholy alliance of politicians and pedagogues peddling palatable reforms prompted a new type of social institution, the teacher's college. And along with it, a new type, that is, of the new philosophy, or whatever that meant to anyone at any given time, of teacher qua teaching expert. Not a content master, but a technician in teaching itself. No longer one who knows about what one teaches, but one who knows about teaching. And just as knowledge of the teacher emphasizes knowledgeable students, so the shift to the active teaching emphasizes active students or acts of learning. So instead of a knowledgeable person talking to less knowledgeable people in the hope that they become more knowledgeable in TC, in SE you've got someone who's an expert in the act of teaching and the students are supposed to be uh, engaged in the act of learning, act of or active learning. And this includes, um, anyone in, in education will understand, this obviously includes reflective and metacognition that is literally learning about learning. Like talking about what we just talked about and uh, how, like, what did it make you think of and how did it make you feel? Learning about your learning, reflecting on your learning. Here is perhaps the root of the hollow man that so doomed the rich tradition of Western liberal democratic education the nonsensical implication that apprenticing knowledge from the knowledgeable, as in a guild, was not an activity at all, nor one worth continuing. The new demagogues not only declared a new era, but unblushingly proclaimed that they themselves had wrought it. Um, there's, a, there's a term here, nostrums, um, anyway, it's used a couple times. Um, it all basically is just referring to jargon, a, a sort of a new technical vocabulary. Um, it's rela related to slogans, and often it occurs in the same. Okay, so quote: "Nostrums, slogans, and catchwords were their chief weapons, their stock in trade, and these followed in a flood of bewildering confusion. Formulas and methodology became fetishes." to be interpreted and applied by the high priests of the new cult. And not content merely to proclaim their faith, these advocates of the new education set out to force their views and methods on the schools and colleges of the land. So effective have been their labors that today their grip and influence has assumed the proportions of a veritable racket. Racket's a word that also uh, was going to come up in, with Rife, who talks about what he calls the problem-solving racket. Uh, again, I think that it's the same kind of diagnosis about education really losing the kind of the rich and tense or the kind of the, the meaty content that it used to offer, that it's, it's an educational game and nothing more. The problem-solving racket or... Even later, what we might call the critical thinking racket. 
So there's a move, I think, from, you know, an original form, like an earlier iteration of the student-centered domination is, you know, problem-solving and self-esteem, the kind of words that, that you would hear in terms of, um, in terms of academics and in terms of character, problem-solving and self-esteem. And the new iteration of student-centered, let's call it a move from domination to super-domination in some form, um, there's only been a slight change in the terms in the last 30 years from problem-solving and self-esteem to critical thinking and SEL, social-emotional learning. But it, it's just the same thing. And it's, it's, it's almost amusing, if it weren't so tragic, the way that people you know, in education so often think they're on the cutting edge just by repeating things that, you know, from a hundred years ago here. That the subject matter, the content, the knowledge base is non-existent, written in steam. And so it can be whatever it wants itself to be. And it runs this risk that often how to think like me and what I think. When, when a teacher isn't really responsible for delivering a lot of knowledge content, a knowledge curriculum, that you can just kind of start to slip in a lot of things this, that, according to your own personal whims and inclinations of what you think is important. It just gives, strangely, it gives too much power. The rules of the game are well understood by deans, superintendents, principals, and teachers employed in these institutions. Though, for their own protections, they are generally reluctant to voice their criticisms in public. They were well understood. Now, the idea that they are, um, the game rules have been lost. They are seen as mere reality, rewrit and writ ever larger. So even then, um, back at this time, it was kind of understood that this is that education had changed from something really um, kind of robust and intense into some kind of, yeah, uh, just this sort of playing a game and, you know, just kind of throwing words around that it became, um, I don't know, uh, like, like, a, like a cheaper market with a lot of, like, peddling hucksters, so to speak, um, not, some, not as part of some rich tradition. And now it it's just... That's kind of all people know. That that is just the reality. Um, I mean, for example, if you you know if you go to a, an expert senior teacher and just kind of talk about you know I'm really having a having a hard time with this class or whatever, they might just say, "Well, are you scaffolding?" They'll just kind of throw like a catchword buzzword at you, and there's almost this kind of uneasy tension of like, okay, um, okay. The fear has been constant. Uh, again, this fear of kind of pointing out that education has kind of become hollowed out. It's like a shell game. The fear has been constant. And after 100 years of orthodox dark silence, deprived of the healthful and stabilizing influence of heterodox, light-bringing voices, there presides a, this is just, just descriptively now, a degraded and inbred poverty of ideas. Unable to respond to intelligent criticism intelligently, it proceeds as an inquisition 
that the heretics found in their midst must be outcast, destroyed, or in this new Orwellian word, cancelled. Because, again, I haven't mentioned this in a while, but student-centeredness in the present moment really sees itself as doubly good and against, basically, as good against evil. Doubly good, again, um, both descriptively and normatively, meaning descriptively good as just effective, competent teaching, and also morally good in terms of being, you know, caring and compassionate, actually caring and loving kids versus the, well, versus anyone who isn't them uh, or any challenge to them must just mean that you just want to be a cruel and ineffective teacher since you don't, you're not enlightened like us, right? And it's, it's cultish, right? And Stearns uses this term of a cult with high priests, but of course, this is sort of an is an excluded middle, right? We're doubly good, student centered, and you're doubly bad, teacher centered. Um, this degradation is the natural consequence of a culture of fear and orthodoxy. Again, that's what Stearns is talking about here, talking about deans, superintendents, principals, and teachers employed are reluctant to voice their criticisms in public, even though they well understand. Um, how education has been degraded. So this, deg this degradation is the natural consequence of a culture of fear and orthodoxy. And o the overall intelligence of the field of education itself is what declines. Right? That there is no... If you don't allow intelligent criticism, then you don't learn to have it... You don't develop intelligent justifications. Meaning, you don't even know what you're doing or why you're doing it. So what happens in this kind of, again, the, the, the high priest in this new cult, intelligence declines, fanaticism increases, only true believers willing to unquestionably or slavishly imbibe um, the great cultist Kool-Aid wisdom are welcome. This does not interest intelligent people who may not want to go into education. They don't want to be they don't want to be subjected to what often seems like hollowed out new age philosophy and pop psychology that, you know, that, that pedagogy is just sort of becomes, or is at, at the whim of act, like professional activists. The great fallacy underlying the activity of the teacher's college is the evident conviction that teachers are made and not born. So he's suggesting that there is there's sort of a natural capacity that some people have. Um, he would believe that you know great teachers are born and they cannot be made. This idea, basically, he's against the entire idea of teachers' colleges altogether. I think if Stearns had his way, he would just say that this is a completely useless, not only useless but actually actively harmful kind of institution. I mean, I'm. I think I, as a more, you know, as a more attainable goal, I'd certainly be, I'm in favor of increasing the way that teacher-centered pedagogy is um, is represented and having more teacher-centered teacher training. But, yeah, um, I think for Stearns, it's, he's pretty pessimistic. It, he seems to think that it's unsalvageable just with um, with, with what it's become. 
And so if you cannot make teachers, then ed schools, teacher training serves no purpose at all. Um, and so if, if they have as their mission to make teachers and it's something that can't be done, that basically everyone in an ed school right now is either a born teacher or not. And um, there's nothing you can do to really help the people who, like it's, basically it's already been determined, who are the good teachers going to be and, and who aren't. And that it's probably, it's probably obvious right from the very beginning. Um, so all you can do is basically waste the time of the born teachers and no matter how much you do or how many years it is, there's nothing you can do for the those who were not born to be teachers. Certainly it's a strange idea today with this idea of kind of a fate or a destiny. Okay, coming back to the text here. For the study of the history of education, educational psychology, methods of teaching, and the like. So this is Stern's idea of like the kinds of courses that we have in ed schools. History of education, educational psychology, methods of teaching, and the like. Even assuming that such subjects are or can be well taught, which almost never happens, is enough to dampen the ardor and dull the idealism of the best who are subjected to its stupefying influence. Many born teachers have undergone this ordeal and subjected themselves to this devitalizing process most of them because they were compelled to do so in order to meet the requirements of public schools. Not a few of these have told me of the dreariness of the experience and its disheartening effect on their ambitions and hopes. So you're excited to be, you know, getting the, the, the training and the credentials to enter a field. You want to be a teacher. And then you just have to endure and suffer through this huge waste of time. Or... I mean, this is actually how most teachers today talk about ed schools. And they just say, yeah, I mean. But then you have your practicum. That's the only saving grace is when you're outside of the education school altogether, when you're in a real school. A lot of, you have to take my word on this, a lot of people say, that's where you learn everything. And um, thus, that you don't learn anything um, in your courses. Which is, again, maybe a bit too pessimistic. It is not stretching the truth, I feel sure, to say that many men of natural and promising teaching gifts are deterred from entering the profession today because of the dread of investing in this senseless procedure. Valuable time that could and should be used to lasting advantage in other and far more helpful ways. The steady shrinkage of men teachers in our public schools is significant. Rarely are they now found in schools of the lower grades, while in those of high school rank, their number steadily dwindles. It is the private schools almost alone that have dared to defy the high priests of the new cult who have evoked and steadfastly held to their own high standards. Interestingly, Stern traces the modernization movement to the abandonment of character education and making it totally practical or for skills. Yet today we see a vulgar knee-jerk character education moment 
at once diluted and wildly potent, looming over us. I mean, this is kind of the, um, just this, that, thinking back to the faces, where you had this something like a, a Christian character, education, um, and, or beyond just Christianity, whatever character was seen as, you know, necessary for a good citizen. And then it's something more distinctly secular without the same emphasis on character or citizenship. And again, as a kind of a vacuum that was perhaps unanticipated. And then how, I think the the best way to think of how that vacuum has been filled um, from Christianity to the secular vacuum or void and the way that activism has emerged, right? Um, and I, I mentioned, I think also uh, D'Angelo and Kendi, and that this new character education is something like some like, like anti-racist engineering. Yeah, and I talked about how, you know, in the first phase, in the more purely teacher-centered, there's a sense of defending the status quo, which would be, I mean, if you're defending the status quo, there's almost nothing for an activist to do, right? Like activism, there's almost, it's been suggested there's a supply and demand problem. You got all these people who just desperately want to make the world a better place. And it's like, well, pointing out to them that the world is basically already a pretty good place, um, but there are some things they could work on. There's like a supply and demand problem that they need to find things that are bad in order for them to be able to indulge their own wish to be activistic ing. Okay. Stern notes, the complete modernization is for bread and butter education and nothing else. Not a trace of anything tending to the development of character, nor in his mind any ideas, any general ideas, any ideas at all, above or outside the realm of his daily tasks. Here he's talking about not how education dampens the ardor for teachers, but how it dampens the ardor for students. That it just makes it, it just cheapens and hollows out like the the potential for great adventure and like a like a heroic journey or a quest, right? Full with, you know, really difficult challenges to overcome, etc. And education of unblushing materialism, not a spiritual thought, not an idea that rises above the need of finding money for the pocket and food for the belly. There is nothing that would implant in the mind of ingenuous, innocent, and unsuspecting youth the thought that there was anything worthwhile outside the shop, the market, the laboratory, and that of the vast accumulations of human thought, any part is worth preserving save that which directly relates to making a living. So here he's saying that you know, education needs to make its own case. It needs to, it actually needs to articulate its own value. Um, that this, that education in terms of uh, opening students up to the life of the mind. He's saying that it just, it completely fails to do that. And what happens is that instead of education having, it's almost, this maybe is an example of, of a, a, an excluded middle. 
that if education isn't meeting its mission of, you know, contributing to uh, like an intellectual culture, then it's contributing to a non or even an anti-intellectual culture. That all of these, that anything outside of our basic practical material needs is not regarded as value. Education doesn't make a case defending it and education doesn't succeed in doing it. Again, um, it kind of goes back to the compensation problem that, you know, there are other, maybe there are other social institutions, families, cultures, communities, religions that are, that are doing this and that they become more important than ever. Because, you know, what, what is really at the heart of education? I think Stearns is just kind of saying nothing. Again, it just becomes hollowed out. And got rid of all the quote-unquote irrelevant stuff. Yet people experience it as more irrelevant than ever. Right? It's enough to make you feel like you're going crazy. Right? All the people who took out all of the great stuff in education to make it relevant, who cares if it, well, who cares if we're not making it great anymore? We don't need great education. Who cares about that? Let's just make it relevant. And then you end up with an education that's neither relevant nor great. And that entire generations have been robbed of becoming well-educated um, or or experiencing anything like the life of the mind. The kind of higher pursuits, higher pleasures. Or, just like the way that great teachers become great teachers in spite of pedagogy, not because of it. Uh, the same way, the, the people who develop... Um, intellectually do so in spite of education rather than because of it again that's the sort of the, the harshest the most pessimistic way of looking at it and i think certainly stearns is pessimistic here and then one arrived back on the scene change uh change change taking this these forms of protest and activism and youth and student culture change in progressivism is kind of what education be comes to be about, and you know the new cult on the heels of the of the self-expression or endless emotional quest, endless expressional quest. Sorry. Do not try to divorce activism from the EEQ, this endless expressional quest. It is all characterized by unchecked, unchallenged, and thus unrestrained progressiveness. And again, this idea of education needing different sides and having become just this one-dimensional thing becomes inbred and incestuous, a living parody of itself. Education today is intellectually weak and ideologically pure, right? You have a high concentration of itself mixing with itself, an echo chamber of ideological purity. But there's also just this catastrophe of intellectual weakness, and in need of a heterodoxical purge of the notion of its own purity towards intellectual reinvigoration. That is the new metaphysics that inhabited the old dead corpse of the character education that was, that God was dead and they had killed him and couldn't last without a new character education. 
so the inverse of the old bad one, thus still consistent with the belief that abandoning the past was and is right. Change, never mind what for. Just simple or brutal change made up of changes and the staggeringly Orwellian eliding of the neutrality of the term, the new impossibility of the very possibility of change for the worse. And the greatest lie of all, that it is of, by, and for the children, and thus has nothing to do with their maturer charges, the new priests, high and otherwise, cultists and pedagogues. So, strangely, the the way that activism is the it becomes the new form of character education but it's it it it's not activism because it's not grassroots in any way this is a top down activism that's actually being imposed very strangely okay so any teacher who's like following an activistic curriculum they're following activist policies you're not an activist in the sense that if you are doing what the state wants you to do, like if the government is mandating your activism, it's not activism. Just an obvious an obvious point, but perhaps none one not well understood. I'm doing what I'm told, that's activism. Maybe, maybe not. So uh, I'm kind of playing on the word charge here a little bit. Charge. Um, means in the sense like that, you know, when you're a teacher, the students are in your charge. That charge in this sense means to entrust someone with the task as a duty or responsibility. Okay. The committee was charged with reshaping the educational system, for example. The duties and responsibilities entrusted to the immature and fostering robust maturity. Okay. God is dead aside. We are much better off embracing and accepting or another seemingly pejoratively Nietzschean idea, the uselessness of youth. So Nietzsche has some interesting comments about how young people are basically useless. And uh, strangely, this coincides with another of the great contributions of Philip Reif. He says, basically says, he, basically activism is ridiculous and that what we need is inactivism. And since we don't really want youth activism because youth are useless and from like a quoting Nietzsche. So if useless people are like the most active, then they're just going to make things worse. I guess that's the general idea here. Uh, Nietzsche wrote that youth, the time of youth is disagreeable for then it is not possible or not reasonable to be productive in any sense. This idea that we need to arm and equip young people to go and change everything. Why? For what? Okay. Uh, so Nietzsche's got this uh, entry on bad-tempered thought. People are like piles of charcoal in the woods. Only when young people have stopped glowing and carbonized, as charcoal does, do they become useful. As long as they smolder and smoke, they are perhaps more interesting, but useless. And all too often troublesome. Mankind unsparingly uses every individual as material to heat its great machines. But what good are all the machines when all the individuals, that is, all mankind, serve only to keep them going? Machines that are their own end. Anyway, I guess the idea here in terms of activism or inactivism 
is that children cannot be moral leaders because following them would necessitate acting like children. Anyway, some kind of transcendent aim that lies within the transmission of culture, of an inheritance of wheat in a world full of chaff. That is to be preferred. The best and greatest stories and teachings having stood time's test. And again, this whole perverse notion of relevance. Children are unmoved by the learning of practical in-demand skills. So this is the way that this whole effort and interest and relevance thing and, you know, learning practical useful skills can be at odds with each other. Children are unmoved by learning practical and demand skills, yet embarking on an adventure quest for knowledge that is their charge, but of which they are not and cannot and ought not be in charge, for that is our charge as teachers. So we can't have students in charge of us, and we can't have students in charge of learning. And students can't be in charge of what we are teaching, because that is our charge. Accepting the lengthy dependence of the human child and giving meaning to it. Again, Bagley emphasized this too, this notion of this long period of dependence and, you know, what are we supposed to do with it? I think it's not until we get to Hannah Arendt where, where we basically get this, where she most kind of obviously puts it. We have to think of education as, as an incredible invention. That for the longest time we had this big problem of this long, useless period of, of childhood. And Nietzsche's talking about that too, right? This, the, the youth, that young people, that they're they're kind of useless. And so, how can we make that time, when they're useless, useful? How can we solve the problem of children? That they're so dependent on us for such a long time. Right? They can't, I mean, they, they can't fend for themselves in nature. It's just a, it's a peculiarity of our uh, mammalianness. And education is just, it's an incredible invention that we need to kind of honor and revere and respect. And since we had the benefit of getting an education, we have the duty of then it's like conservation, right? There's a great moment in one of the um, Planet Earth documentaries where sort of a, an environmental activist is just saying, you didn't put this, you know, let's just say a species. You didn't put that species there. Therefore, you can't kill it, right? Like anything that we inherit, we need to conserve. You can't just kill it or destroy it. Well, you know, you can't just say, well, that, that species of life isn't really relevant anymore. It's like, well, you didn't make it, so you can't destroy it. You got an education from people who got an education, etc., going back and back and back. You're part of a huge tr tradition, whether you want to think of yourself as in those terms or not. No, I'm a disruptor. I'm going to be the one who chooses to end, a, or, or, you know, I, I'm conspiring towards the death of culture, despite having inherited it. I'm just going to hoard it all for myself. I'm going to refuse to pass on this inheritance because I've decided it's not very good. Just the unimaginable hubris of this. Much better to think of yourself as a torchbearer, as a link in the chain. 
No, I'm not a link in the chain. I am the chain. I'm a disruptor. Okay. Okay, back to Stearns. This means a revolution in our whole education system. Since if primary and secondary schools apply these theories, colleges and universities will be forced to adopt them. There's a great idea, great, uh, idea here of this ripple effect that we might think that, well, let's just be experimental and we can change things. But you can't. The whole education system is all one system. And so there, there are ripple effects even to experimental changes. You know, like, well, did you guys learn this in grade three? No, there was like an experiment where we didn't learn that. We learned something else. Um, okay, so the grade four is forced to adopt to that. So the announced aims of the board in this experiment are so far-reaching, revolutionary, so dangerous to the interests of the country and to the minds of youth, that they should have immediate and earnest consideration. Again, you got to love how, how balanced and measured um, these teacher-centered writers were back in the 30s and early 40s. That there's a far-reaching revolutionary danger to the interests of our country and to the minds of the youth. And... We need to uh, consider it immediately and earnestly. So, uh, pessimistically, that ship has sailed, right? Again, Stern's writing in 35. And again, thinking of uh, Rife here in terms of being people of the page. People of the book is sometimes used to refer to the, the monotheistic religions. And so um, there's, a, there's a quote where Rife is saying that teachers... You know, need to be basically they need to be book learning type people. That that's a good thing. Says, we need to be people of the book. Now, we need to be people of the page. That we need to basically we ourselves need to be knowledge apprentices, and we teach from that, like out of that apprenticeship, out of that knowledge, out of what we've gained, and pass that on. That is how teaching has to work in a teacher centered mode. Teachers should be people of the page, stewards, answering to the canonical guild grandmasters, mostly unaffected by the whims of novices external to the sacred order. That the timeless then is to be preferred over the timely or trendy now. I got one professor who just kind of refers to a lot of these these like timely trends just as trash timely trendy trash they ought to timelessly serve culture teachers that is rather than rush to be seen as timely or relevant or responsive not serving any moment of present time as if it possessed commensurate authority the teachers are serving the entire tradition of passing on information that we're not just transmitting specific things but we're also acting in our role as the continuance of the very act of transmission, right? This, this sacred thing of passing what we have, what we know, what we've gained, passing it along to someone else, to basically, in, in the broadest sense, to the next generation. Nothing else that you can teach can be anywhere as important as that or, or nearly as relevant, So this speaks to a conviction that we teachers serve a higher authority 
as lovers of wisdom. Again, the canon, the guild grandmasters. That is who we serve. And we serve students too. But we serve students actually indirectly by directly serving knowledge. And we'll continue to do so, no matter what you may say or do to us. That kind of conviction is conspicuously lacking. Stearns, uh, again, quoting the New York Times, and thinking specifically of Dewey here. If this experiment bears the expected fruit, we shall see imposed upon the country a system of education, born of the theories of one or two men, Dewey, and replacing a system that has been the natural outgrowth of the American character and the needs of the American people. That an education system that emerged and cropped up and was developed and, you know, by American people for the American character. And then one guy comes along and just the ideas become so popular that, again, the, I mean, the revolution in education is over. Like, it, it, it's already happened. That's what I mean when I say this student-centered superdominance. So anyone thinking that talking about these same kinds of ideas and wanting to sound like education needs like a new revolution, it, that just, that's just Freerian in the sense that we just need a constant perpetual revolution where we're constantly reinventing everything endlessly. Again, teacher-centeredness is really all about stability, um, whereas SC is really all about flux, change. They never stop talking about change, right? So con conveniently for me, I see in this patch what I suspect of all North American teacher education, uh, this sort of haunting specter of Dewey. How can we frame the most dangerous influences in so much of the educational practices and avowed aims of the present day, Stearns asks. Again, it is important to note that the idea of education is itself a danger to society because, well, due to its avowed aims. So there's a strange term I want to just use really briefly here, which I'll come back to later, but it's called cryptomnesia, like, like crypto and amnesia. Um, but it's referring to, not referring to currency, of course, um, but it pertains to memory. So cryptomnesia is the appearance in consciousness of memory images which are not recognized as such, but which appear as original creations. So basically, you see something and you don't recognize it, and so you think it's new. But it's not new. It's a, it's a memory. You just don't remember that it's a memory, so it seems like a new thing. Right? So like, oh, look, this brand new thing. Um, you know, um... We should get rid of uh, grades in school, right? What a radical, revolutionary thought. Getting rid of grades? Uh, like th This was like first suggested like hundreds of years ago. This idea is that education has no idea of its own education. Like, education has no sense of the history of education. And so it's just people saying things, and if you haven't heard that thing, you think that it's new. It's not. It's just, it's, it's a product of being completely ignorant of all of the, of the entire tradition of the history of education itself. Unlike anyone has ever thought ever before, I think schools should be creative. No, like, that's, that's what 
like that's what almost everybody thought hundreds of years ago. Again, this so it's it's not quite as malicious as a lie. It's just people who have no conception of education that they can constantly be fooled into thinking something's new and improved and cutting edge when almost everything that everybody thinks is like on the cutting edge now in education is a hundred years old and has already been implemented basically that it's already been completely taken over by the same people who are in possession of it right now and the same ideas Okay, I think the cryptomnesiac pedagogues today need to know that their cutting-edge reforms have been barely intelligible for a near century. That you've already had your way for a hundred years. What's the state of education now? How well-educated is everybody? Better than, you know, 150 years ago? Well, I mean, it's not obvious to say. It's a hard comparison. But how happy are we with the progress there's a similar critique that you could make. Um, there's a like critical psychology or something called anti-psychiatry. It's like, well, we've had, well, we've had, I don't know, let's say 200 years of, of the same modern psychiatric approach. How mentally healthy is everybody? Or is it only because we haven't become psychiatric enough? Or it could, maybe it's due to, to stigma or things like that. This idea that if you've had your way forever, or in political terms, like if you're in uh, your second term and you're seventh out of eight years of, of two four-year terms, and uh, everything's terrible, it's you know it's your fault, basically would be the idea. Okay. So, all the so, sort of cutting edge. I mean, you've completely had your way of a super dominant majority for at least a half century. And has it resulted in better educated people? Or, perhaps quite the contrary. You know, speaking of... Uh, I was talking about some topical things earlier. You know, you see all these videos about, like, people being pop-quizzed in public and providing poor answers. Uh, strangely, one recently about America that just, I don't know, seemed to go viral. Even though there, there seemed to be so many of this genre. Of course, that's just a snapshot. It's not certainly not scientific. But to keep thinking that the new reforms are just modern statutes already long instituted, but having failed to produce better education at all. So this cryptomnesia is like you keep banging your head against the wall that, you know, we, we need to make schools more like open and fun and free and creative with teachers who are not, you know, all like strict. And it's like, yeah, the, that, that already happened. Like that's exactly what the whole thing did like 75 years ago. It's just, it's cryptomnesiac, right? It's, it's mistaking the fact that this is, like, we have seen this before. You just don't know. You just don't remember. And so it appears new when it isn't. So it's all conveniently unremembered or perpetually forgotten insofar as the faith in the new way is unshakable. So when you've had your way, you've already revolutionized education. It isn't any better. And so it's almost like forgetting that they already revolutionized it in the exact same way. And they keep trying to re-revolutionize it in the exact same way again. It's like, yeah, you, you already did that. You already got that change. So just to keep, keep reimagining and keep 
re-implementing the same ideas again and again. And so it's almost strange like continuing to pretend that SC hasn't yet instituted everything that it already wanted to. It already has. So it's script amnesic. The same song, the only song, plays. Continuing on, pretending that these old change ideas are new. And trying to more forcefully and fully implement old, already implemented ideas. Because what else is there? Now, strangely, there there is also, uh, on the flip side, a kernel of truth to this. I've been talking about how a lot of teachers, frankly, who a lot of the best teachers, are pushing back against, you know, this super dominant SC pedagogy because they have no faith in it and or that they've that they've tried it in practice and it doesn't work and so they don't do it and so this keeps causing this theoretical well we need to keep doing it we need to do more of it we still have these teachers who are like holding out and so you get these this ideological purity and eventually you can you can train them out something like you can kind of outbreed them um all the kind of hangers on of you know of uh, TVSC or more TC-inclined teachers. Anyway, with no heterodoxy, uh, without a, a diversity of ideas, there are no antibodies to these to the excesses in the ideology. The answer just has to work. If we don't see the desired outcomes, it's because someone is not trying hard enough. To implement the theory. The theory is untouchable. These theories are going to make education better. Okay, after 100 years, these theories have not made education better. That's because people aren't doing them right. They're not doing them enough. Maybe they did already try all of your ideas and they don't like them and they don't work. Or they ultimately see them as destructive. No, see, the theory is untouchable. So this is essential Marxism. And the permanent or perpetual re-revolution um, that bore no fruit. The best and perhaps only way to elide the fruitlessness that, okay, you've already had your revolution and like all the things that you promised, some new, great, amazing, you know, super educated population never emerged. You just have to keep pretending that the changes you want are still coming. You've already had your changes. You've already gotten your way. You've already completely rewritten all of the policy of everything. Like you are already in this super dominant position. You have to keep pretending like you're punching up against some phantasm. That's why I call it the way that SE characterizes TC is a hollow man. Right? It pretends like there's that teacher centeredness is still dominant. Right? Like all teachers do is they're just cruel and unkind and they make people sit down and listen to their boring speeches. No, that's only to the extent that that's absolutely necessary. Every teacher thinks of themselves as student-centered. It just, I really believe it's a problem of the ideas, at the level of ideas. Okay. Coming back to Stearns. Quote, 
Not only should practical and utilitarian subjects supplant those which have been necessary and best in the past, but other and perhaps even more dangerous changes were promised and put into effect. Formal discipline has been done away with. Remember, Stearns is is basically a contemporary of Bagley's, and so we're seeing some overlap with Stearns and Bagley here. The, quote, interest of the pupil was to become controlling and determine his choice of subjects. The road to learning was to be made a smooth and easy one by the removal of hindering obstacles and disagreeable tasks. Again, thinking about what I was saying at the outset about compensation. Uh, if school doesn't have any hindering obstacles or disagreeable tasks, then, you know, parents who, or kids who themselves demand stimulation, or, uh, you know, parents who are, parents who may sense that school is basically too easy, they could find other ways um, for students to, to gain the same kinds of things that they get from, you know, dealing with, you know, disagreeable tasks and obstacles. Overcoming. Progressive education unrestrained, collapses into pre-modern, okay, or not in, primitive in a non-pejorative sense. It's just pre-modern education. It's just kids running around playing. Pre-modern is a sense of, you know, well before the Industrial Revolution. Basically, before we had, before somebody came up with the idea of schools, schooling, um, you know, formal education, there is no cultural edifice needing apprenticeship, there's no urgency of transmission. There is really no past. I mean, you still have, you maybe you'd have a sense of ancestors, or you, know, you or you've you've got reverence for older people. But there's no past in terms of like a written history. Just the howling tyranny of the present, constantly being remade, is where we are in education now. And no sublime, transcendent cultural object. And so it's. You might say that teacher-centeredness is, of course, invested in the present, but that it's focused on this great past, right? Uh, Rife says that to leave the great past unremembered is to be adrift in the howling present. So our experience of the present is contingent upon some sort of meaningful connection to the past. Of course, SC inverts this. It fetishizes a utopian future. It's focused on a perfect future. Like it, or it, it lifts up, it um, valorizes, glamorizes. It basically looks to the future. Um, it acts in the present, looks to the future. Whereas teacher-centeredness acts in the present, but looks to the past. So again, this, you know, fetishizing a utopian future to imminentize the eschaton to bring about heaven on earth, right? Revolution for utopia. Teacher centeredness does not believe in utopia, right? Or only in the sense that it truly means no place. Okay, so Stearns is going to turn, he's going to make a bit of a psychological turn here, interestingly. And again, this is, I think, anticipating later critiques of um, the way that education becomes too therapeutic. Quacks who posed as psychologists. Enthusiastically and noisily, they seized their chance. Slogans and catchwords filled the air. Tests were invented. Formulas were devised. To crown it all, the assurance of these pseudo-psychologists 
that their inventions and methods were scientific. He's talking about the birth of educational psychology here. It's scientific. Gave their pronouncements unwarranted and unfortunate weight in the muddled thinking of an unscientific public mind. Again, the, the public mind, in, according to Stern, is unscientific, but also he's talking about, he's anticipating scientism. That if you can just dress something up as science sounding, then you won't be called or questioned. Right? This is a way to insulate yourself from critique, which is exactly the opposite of what science does. Science doesn't try to use authority or leverage authority to prevent critique. It like openly publishes its methodology and says, okay, come and, come and critique it all you want. Or better yet, try to reproduce it yourself. It's been suggested that all disciplines want to be science. They want that authority, right, that science has. And also, um, more lightheartedly, that all sciences want to be physics, because physics has laws. And so, you know, it's no coincidence that typically, maybe before the last two years, a scientist would never end an argument by just saying, well, that's science. It's science. Right? They wouldn't make it. An appeal to authority isn't needed. When you actually have the science on your side, you've got data, facts, findings, whatever. You don't need to rely on the fact that it's science itself. If it's good science, then it's um, it's going to you know justify itself in in, in in more specific ways. Okay, so not just pedagogues, but a complementary chorus of psychologists playing the same games all stomped on the corpse of education. And so, no surprise, the therapeutic ideal so appeals to both groups. Nothing has appealed more strongly to the modernists in the educational field, and nothing has been given more publicity than what it regularly terms the interest of the individual pupil, as stated. But there is grave danger involved in the attempt to determine in the days of childhood and immaturity, those mistakes that are true, those, those interests that are truly real. Whims are as natural to youth as breathing. And whims may be, and often are, mistaken for interests. So, you know, like letting kids determine what they're going to learn, there's not going to be any continuity. They're going to want to learn a new thing tomorrow. And it never builds, or use an education word very much in vogue, scaffolds. It doesn't go anywhere. Today I want to learn about this. Tomorrow it's going to be something else. Okay, continuing on. Uh, again, you see the, the overlap with Bagley and Stearns. Actual interest implies or demands a definitive investment rarely found in childhood. An investment or something like a commitment that you're really interested in something. So this dovetails into wrong-headed thinking. Basically, increasingly, it's thought that, well, kids are the authority and thus their whims are law. They're in charge rather than, than being in our charge. All of this stems from a crude anti-past mentality. Well, if like, we just see how almost reactionary and reaction formation uh, guilty SC is. 
Well, in the old way, in teacher-centeredness, the teachers were in charge. So we're, again, we're just the opposite of that. We think the kids should be in charge. It's almost, it's, 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 you'd have to describe it as being too clever, right? Just, it's, we're, we're here to outsmart the, the facts of life and reality. So we imagine this hollow man education of days past and must now somehow or metaphorically fix it retroactively and symbolically. We're just going to do the opposite of everything that what we, what we imagine educators used to do. So you have a completely made up history of how teachers used to be. Teachers used to be just really cruel and mean, like people who got their complete, as if the uh, Pink Floyd video for another brick in the wall is taken to be the complete history of education in, you know, and uh, they define themselves as being the opposite of that. All right, hey, teacher, leave those kids alone kind of thing. Okay, the permanent installation of whims. Uh, okay, quote, the absurdity of stressing youthful interests is clearly emphasized. Um, another and dangerous factor is involved in this stressing of individual whims. When an interest is so exalted, quote, sustained effort along any line or in connection with any subject not clearly related to the interest in question becomes impossible. So you let people, you know, study whatever they want, then they aren't going to want to study anything that they don't want to study, obviously. The exaggerated stress that has been placed on the, quote, interest of the pupil uh, has brought into being countless progressive schools, which deprive children of difficult and disagreeable duties that they need. Thinking, again, SC thinks of teacher-centeredness as, well, you're just depriving kids of freedom and creativity. Again, but TC needs to make this counter-argument that you're depriving them of difficult, disagreeable things. You're depriving them of the opportunity to overcome challenging obstacles because you want to remove the challenging obstacles. What we need to do is remove the resistance, remove the reluctance to take on difficult challenges. That's what we need to remove, not the challenge itself. You just want to deprive freedom and creativity. Again, we need this kind of dialogue to go somewhere, not just to be on two opposite sides, just saying something. Stern goes on to ridicule the blatantly absurd, downright silliness of the earliest yelps of interdisciplinarity. That is, quote, geography set to music. The process of building the foundations of anything, be it a house or a mind or a character, is necessarily difficult, is regularly uninteresting, and in all cases demands hard and continued effort. One more time. The process of building the foundations of anything, be it a house or a mind or a character, is necessarily difficult, is regularly uninteresting, but also very often interesting, and in all cases demands hard and continued effort. Um, there's a great anecdote uh, that Stearns uses, it's, but it's from uh, Dwight Morrow's brilliant case of the would-be banker. 
So someone asked, um, kind of a, a head of school, what course of study would you recommend for a student who plans to be a banker? Then the answer. Well, I don't know. Pick out from the curriculum the hardest subjects you can find. Give to that program for the four years of your college course all the time and effort you can muster. When you are through, there won't be a bank in the country that will not be glad to employ you, and you may end up becoming its president or CEO. So this is a, I mean, this is essentially an argument that completely shuts down the relevant skills question. Okay. What are the relevant skills that they're going to need to be competitive in the global 21st century marketplace? Um, stop trying to think of it specifically, like you're going to you know, thread the needle and get this so perfect. The answer is to actually seek out really difficult, challenging things, right? What, what's the hardest program? What, what is the highest dropout rate, right? If you're um, uh, highly, if you're intelligent and capable, then those are the kinds of things you should be going into. Not just because then you're on your path of becoming a more overcoming type person. And that is what's going to open up opportunities for you. Right? We, we so often just think in terms of, you know, getting the credentials for something that is high in demand. Right? We, th we have this very crude um, supply and demand way of thinking about education. But the idea here is that if you choose, like, you know, go to the best school you get into, take the hardest program, take all the hardest courses. And if you keep putting yourself through something like that, you're just, you're going to be unstoppable. You're going to develop this unshakable will. Like, it, it won't be possible for anyone even to stop you from being incredibly, wildly successful. Right? It's, it's just a, it's, it's beautiful because it's a general way um, to solve a, a problem that seems as so specific. And I think one of the reasons we think way too specifically and why this idea is so refreshing is that, you know, we think that we almost tend to think in terms of everyone has to find the one thing that they're meant or supposed to do. And and it's sort of a... That, that has to be unearthed or discovered somehow. Um, but... It's, it, that, that, it's just making too small of a target. Like This makes the target a lot bigger. Do just, just do really hard stuff all the time, right? Um, find considerable intellectual challenges and you'll find stimulation in those challenges. Okay. So I want, there, there's another, um, another paragraph here about this, this guy, Dwight Morrow this kind of the, the advisor in that in that example which only knocks this relevancy question you know further on its behind so to speak his own familiarity with the greek and latin classics even in his later years was a source of constant surprise and wonder to his associates and of constant satisfaction to himself 
in them he found a never-failing supply of illustrations pertinently applicable, relevant, to modern problems. And in their study, he had found a priceless opportunity for the development of intellectual muscle and those clear-cut judgments for which he was famous. Yet we are fast relegating the classics to the scrap heap of today. And why? Well, because their direct utilitarian value is not easy to appraise. And they are hard. Quote, geography set to music is so much easier and more, quote, interesting. Let no youth have any anxiety about the upshot of his education, whatever the line of it may be. If he keeps faithfully busy each hour of the working day, he may safely leave the final result to itself. He can, with perfect certainty, count on waking up some fine morning to find himself one of the competent ones of his generation. So don't worry about where your education is leading on a specific career path, whatever the line may be, Stearns writes. If you're, if you're busy, if you're working faithfully, each hour of the working day, not, not, not all day and all night, every day, right? You have your working day, whatever it is, 9 to 5. Students are sometimes earlier, right? 8 to 4. During those hours, you're, you're working diligently, faithfully. If you do that, everything else will be okay. It'll kind of strangely sort itself out. Now, it's still reasonable to, you know, think carefully about the schools you apply to and the you know, programs you want to major in eventually when you get there. But the, the, the idea just become one of the most competent people of your generation. Like, that should be the goal. That should be the target. And if you can achieve that, you'll probably be able to do almost anything that you want. And if you want to, you know, really highly specialize in something technical, then go ahead. So it's much more... Like, this is... It almost speaks to this ingenious, but this completely lost idea. This direct overlap between something like knowledge acquisition and character education. And we've been seeing them as very separate. But the character that is required, the, the, you have to summon it from deep within yourself in order to, to achieve the substantive acquisition of abstract knowledge. Like there's a, there's a discipline that's involved in learning all the hardest stuff. Right, I mean, it's let's just, let's just say something like Shakespeare is is really hard, okay. But if seeing that it is hard, that other people see it as a challenge, if a student sort of attacks it enthusiastically, right? Of course, there are going to be periods of frustration, but just in the overcoming of the challenge that develops the character while it while it acquires the knowledge. Okay, coming to my conclusion here. Okay, so, to him that overcometh, this 1935 book's title, 
all shall be given. The greatest joys in life belong to those who overcome. So, to ask about the relevancy of this or that, how is it, is it responsive to whatever, um, this question about, is this really relevant, is often motivated by resistance and reluctance. So you're basically saying, like, is this really relevant? What you're really saying is, do I really have to do this? Can't I just not do this instead? Can I do something else? This question, when posed by students to teachers, is a test. And it's a test the teacher has to pass. It's a test to the teacher to see if you have any real faith in what you're teaching. If you really believe that it's meritous, right, that it has a lot of merit, that it's important, or even that it's essential, then you're like, no, it's extremely relevant. And yes, you have to do it. No, you can't get out of it. You have to make this demonstration that you believe in the importance of what you're teaching. Do I really have to do this? Well, not if you don't want to. That's an implicit admission that it, you don't even think that it's important. Now, I don't really think that what I'm asking you to do is very important, so you should just do whatever you want. There is a really deep level, I think, here where this is almost something like an F you to the student. Yeah, just go do whatever you want, right? Like F off, so to speak. And teachers are failing. Teachers are being taught how to fail this test right it's 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 almost the same thing as to say do you believe in anything that you're doing is actually important that you're trying to teach us the teacher just says nope it's not just do whatever this question can also be asked because it's causing distress right like you just feel like it's too hard you feel like it's hopeless i know that feeling with when it comes to math so this question can also be asked. I mean, it's not just a matter of trying to get out of something. It's not just, you know, laziness. Uh, but, you know, when something is actively causing distress, it's a challenge that seems insurmountable, right? I, I can't do math, and I'm not going to be a mathematician, so why? And it's precisely because this is an opportunity to overcome. And it's an opportunity to surprise yourself, to exceed your own perceived limits. I can't do this. You can do it. And then after you do it, you realize, in a, in a general sense, I can do things that I don't even think I can do. Right? That, that's a, that is a better source of self-esteem than just trying to tell people to have self-esteem. Any implication, however well-intentioned, that I can't do it, it's too hard, any implication, however well-intentioned, that, yep, you're right, you're not smart enough to overcome this, so let's just, I don't know, make it easier or f not find a way for you to get out of it or to accommodate you in any other way. Or let me modify it to make it more accessible. That's the language that we use now. In the short term, there's this giddy victory of the student or child, right? I don't want to do it. Can I not do it? Fine. Yes. Right. Um, but it may even bring relief to the parent. The parent sees the child struggling with something. And they may, frankly, they may misinterpret it or mischaracterize it as suffering. I mean, I, I struggled with math. I never really suffered. 
but it, it it felt like suffering, right? But come on, it's not it's not it's not really. It's it's hyperbolic. Um, and it's, it's certainly natural for parents to want to remove a cause or a source of distress. And teachers too. Teachers develop bonds with their students, and you want to remove causes of distress for people that you care about or people that you love. We all want to do that. But nothing is more relevant for you than cultivating a becoming towards overcoming. Every opportunity to dismiss as relevant or as not responsive. Um, it's irrelevant or it's not responsive to something now in order to overcome the challenge it presents. Is also an opportunity to demand the resolve needed to overcome it. So the value then becomes overcoming the challenge by committing to it. This is really hard. So then you need to be committed if you're going to overcome it. It's a great challenge. It requires great effort in order to overcome. That's the lesson. So when you learn after overcoming, you're, first you have to overcome your own reluctance. You have to overcome your own resistance. You have to find some resolve, find some commitment. Oh, you're not interested? Who cares? Of course, we do care, but it's a matter of... Uh, in this way, strangely, coaching is actually much, much, much more sophisticated psychologically, I think, than teaching. Um, and, and teaching also... Unlike teaching, I think coaching still maintains a lot of the things that still would have been great coaching 100, 200, 300 years ago. I mean, it's changed and modified. Certainly, it's become more more technical and, and data-driven. Um, but in terms of um, motivating young people to be, uh, to be better or the best versions of themselves, I think coaching is certainly a better reflection of TVSC and ultimately as a result more advanced more sophisticated I think that teaching actually has a lot to learn from coaching frankly yeah and the teachers who approach teaching like coaches I think are are probably going to certainly der derive a lot of strength from it we see an overlap okay where am I here So when you learn, after overcoming your own reluctance or resistance, A, you learn the object of the lesson, gaining that knowledge, and B, you learn that you have the power to overcome, right? So this is gaining character and knowledge simultaneously, rather than learning the bad life lesson that you can get out of stuff, and also and including whatever stuff you could have learned. So not only do you not learn the thing, you also learn that you don't have to learn things. And again, it's also education's own tacit admission that it doesn't even think that what it's trying to teach you is that important. Right? I mean, if you can weasel... If I'm just going to kind of shrug while you try to weasel out of something, then I'm, I'm just saying, yeah, I mean, whatever, who cares? It's just your education, right? Big deal. He doesn't need to learn Shakespeare because he isn't going to be a Shakespeare scholar. But he does need to learn that great challenges must be faced, met head-on, 
and not sidestepped. That is, that's the last thing he needs to learn. And that lesson itself is a lesson in character just as rewarding as the higher pleasures found in reading great works. There's another different kind of characterological higher pleasure, too, in just overcoming in this overcoming I guess the true spirit is somehow related to a growth mindset, but I, I can't really trust that as, as sort of a, as an invoke SC term. Overcoming is better. So the other path neither informs character nor a life of the mind. Some surely experience themselves in this way, in the following way. I'm about to read. Um, I'm a victim of circumstance. I'm a victim of the circumstances of my life. My, you know, the circumstances of my life, my oppression, they have overcome me. I have been overcome, okay, by trauma and hardship or even injustice. Well, certainly, I mean, yes, human tragedy is real. Um, but the idea here, certainly for someone like Stearns, trying to imagine what Stearns would say, um, I mean, you're just thinking of yourself as having been overcome or thinking of yourself as a victim, I think would be the same thing. Um, the victim is the one who has been overcome and the hero is the one who overcomes. Um, so, uh, it, it may be a strange duality to posit this victim versus hero kind of thing. Um, but again, it's, it's, it's kind of a cliche, but becoming the hero of your own story, you just cannot have this self-concept of yourself as a victim, as someone who has been overcome by external circumstances of which you're a victim, oppression, injustice, like I said. Human tragedy is real, but nevertheless, the greatest joys in life belong to those who overcome. I think that's what Stearns would say. That's really what his book is all about. And the one who has more to overcome, the greater the available sense of satisfaction in doing it. Resignation to permanent victimhood is a deprivation of life's greatest joys. Because life's greatest joys are found in overcoming. Whereby one just becomes a victim again through the deprivation of your greatest joys. Okay, so I'm going to wrap up. That's um, that's Alfred E. Stearns in his 1935 book, To He That Overcometh. Yeah, another long, another long one here for you. Two hour, forty minute mark. Um, okay, so thanks very much again. This is Unchanging Education with Dan Clements. <laughs>